to give up on your dreams. Another drink, please. <laughs> I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to drink this anymore. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on. If one of you nuts has got any guts. What's for the smile on that face? You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me! Listen to you by what right? Because I have a right to be. Uh, I have a voice! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a part of the following films network. This week, uh... Because Woody Allen has yet another new movie coming out, which he does every year, uh, we are picking Matchpoint to look at. We're looking at Matchpoint and classism. And really, uh, this episode is about me. Um, I thought, like, you know, Woody Allen, you have all the choices in the world. You could, you could do Annie Hall. You know, you could do the classics. And then I thought back to one of my favorite podcasts, which, as you all know, is War Machine vs. <laughs> War Horse. And uh, there is a certain member of that team who did maybe the greatest synopsis ever recorded of any film. So I brought in Jared Dotson to relive Matchpoint with us one more time. So thanks for being on the show. I'm so glad that I have achieved internet infamy and that uh, I'm going to go on to live on forever in everybody's hearts and minds as being that guy that did the 10-minute synopsis on Woody Allen. <laughs> Someday it's going to grow and you're going to end up meeting Woody Allen because of this. It's... You know, I just, I just that's my secret hope is just that he actually listens to it and gets as much of a kick out of it as Dave apparently gets. <laughs> I don't know if anyone could get that much of a kick out of it. Like, it was something like a bright time, bright place. It all was like just perfect this synchronicity that just hit me just at the right time you. yeah it really did uh <laughs> and if i can manage it do not think i will not put in that synopsis at the end of this episode just so right. everyone has to relive that one more time <laughs> it's good buffer material i mean if you need a good 10 minutes that you can add it on your podcast i'm your man you pick the right guy <laughs> all right uh so speaking of that why don't you tell people about the podcast you used to be a part of and now sometimes show up sporadically uh so tell them about war machine versus warhorse like they don't know already uh mike and christopher take a movie and using the theme of that movie they uh pick two older movies that kind of try to uh take opposite sides as best as possible for that particular theme and they fight it out and then usually at the end, I'm the one that is in the minority <laughs> as far as voting for which movie was better. It, it, was, it was a lot of fun, and I enjoyed doing it, but it's, Mike is an absolute wild man as far as the amount of the volume that he puts away. It's just like, I, I can't keep up. I don't have that level of passion. For yeah, it. I, I mean, mean, we I can't speak for the stuff. quality, but quantity-wise, very impressive work from Mike. It's, I, I can't take it away from him, man. He... Uh, <laughs> every every minute every second and it's 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 a it's a it's a load of work as far as like trying to put out two episodes a week it's I, yeah. I admire him i do all right i'll be sure to cut that part out i don't want him to hear that well you know, way you know, too to positive anyway, yeah. <laughs> but if you'd like to bother mike and the show uh go follow him on twitter at war machine horse he loves getting those notifications so oh, yeah, send him his way that. especially hey also, uh, send all your Marvel movie interests to him. He absolutely loves every single Marvel movie. So That's please right. regale him with Marvel movies. Definitely. All right. Um, so, of course, we're talking about Matchpoint and classism. So do you have a couple movie recommendations for us? I have. Um, and again, I'm, I'm not the man for uh, scraping the uh, the small picks, the indie films. So. <laughs> um 
I actually have four just at the top of my head. All of these from 2013 as well. So my my mm. memory only goes back a couple of years. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I had a strong Leo vibe. So I went with Wolf of Wall Street and Great Gatsby as far as that goes. It's kind of he's pretty different as far as his his attitude and the characters he plays in it. And class definitely um, plays into that movie too, for sure. Mm, yeah, I, I thought Great Gatsby a little bit more than uh, Wolf of Wall Street. But if I have any reason to suggest Wolf of Wall Street, I love that movie. I've watched <laughs> that like ten times. Any so. excuse, yes. Any excuse. Um, and another one that I actually haven't watched, but I have, but. Fits the tone and the theme would be Blue Jasmine in 2013, also a Woody film. If you'd like it from the uh, perspective of a female lead instead of handsome Leo. Um, <laughs> and all, uh, the kind of the sci-fi pick that I thought of was Elysium mm. from 2013. Yeah. It had, you know, it wasn't a fantastic film, but it, it, I think it did capture classism as sort of ham-fistedly, if you will. But. <laughs> yeah, as directly as a person can. We are on a different... It's not very subtle. So. We're, like, literally separating classes by planets. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that is uh, on the nose, if nothing else. But, yeah, some mm-hmm. good recommendations. Uh, certainly a range of types of films and quality of films. But I think... I don't think any of those films I wouldn't, like, recommend watching at least once. Even mm-hmm. Elysium, which gets a lot of crap, I still feel like is is worth a watch. It's enjoyable for what it is. I thought I didn't really want to crap on it too much, but it definitely doesn't have the weight of any of the other films. So Yeah, for sure. All right, uh, so we'll take a little break, and I'll talk about classism, and then we'll bring Jared back in uh, to talk about Matchpoint. All right, so as I mentioned, the psychology section today is on classism, also called class discrimination. Basically, it's just prejudice or discrimination on the basis of social class. It includes individuals' attitudes, behaviors, systems of policies, and practices that are set up specifically to benefit the upper class at the expense of the lower class. For example, middle class and upper class individuals in the United States referring to working class white Americans as, quote, poor white trash can be regarded as a form of class prejudice, the insult having the capacity to be historically analogous to racist language against African Americans. Although, of course, there is there are other systemic things going on with treatment of black Americans in the United States. So let's not make these exactly equal. In terms of the history, class structures existed in a simplified form in even pre-agricultural societies, but they did become much more complex and established following the establishment of this permanent agriculture-based civilization with food surpluses. Classism started to be practiced kind of officially around the 18th century. So there's a difference between institutional and personal classism. The term classism can refer to a personal prejudice against either lower or upper classes as well as to institutional classism, just as the term racism can sometimes refer either strictly to personal bigotry or to institutional racism. The former has been defined as, quote, the ways in which conscious or unconscious classism is manifest in the various institutions of our society. The term interpersonal is sometimes used in place of personal, as in institutional classism versus interpersonal classism, and terms such as attitude or attitudinal may replace interpersonal as contrasting with institutional classism. For instance, the Association of Magazine Media's definition of classism is any attitude or institutional practice which subordinates people due to income, occupation, education, 
and or their economic condition. Classism is also sometimes broken down into more than two categories, as in personal, institutional, and cultural classism. There's lots of terms associated with personal or attitudinal classism, including white trash, redneck, little men or little people, trailer trash, the unwashed masses, the great unwashed, moochers, proles, bludgers, the list kind of goes on and on. In earlier historical periods, classist terms and phrases such as hoi polloi or plebs, which are derogatory towards the working classes, were more commonly used than they are today. Now, there's been lots of accusations of classism throughout history. People who generally tend to find charges of classism against lower classes to be unfounded or unreasonably harsh often characterize the perceived prejudice as expressive of classist class envy. Those who argue classism is especially pervasive or fundamental to the society that they live in often will identify classism as the expression of systematic economic exploitation by the, quote, higher classes and may connect it with an explicit notion of what they would call class warfare. However, any particular accusation of classism does not as such presuppose any such claim. Just as people may agree on examples of overt racism while disagreeing intensely over how widespread or deep-seated racist attitudes are in their own society. So this leaves us in kind of an interesting place because if it's it's not easily determined, it's also not easily legislated against. Like we all agree Class discrimination is probably wrong. We shouldn't do it. But if we can't agree on what it is and what it looks like, it's hard to put anything legal on it. So the European Convention on Human Rights does contain protections against social class discrimination. But only a few signatory states have signed and ratified these protections. Those that have signed and ratified this have implemented some domestic laws against discrimination because of social class in the same way that they do for race discrimination, sex discrimination, or age discrimination. But again... Where's the line? It gets really blurry because like where is where does high class meet upper high class meet middle class meet lower middle class meet lower class? You know, like there's a lot of different uh, variables that go into this that makes it really, really difficult uh, to kind of nail down and then have legislation on. All right. So this article is called Outcomes of Social Class and Classism in First and Continuing Generation College Students. And this is from Alan, Garriott and Keene in this year, 2016. So in terms of that title, they define first-generation college students as students whose parents have not completed a bachelor's degree. Now, they wanted to study this because classism has been cited in previous literature as a specific environmental barrier that first-generation college students face in higher education institutions. So the definition they use for classism is a manifestation of social class, privilege, and power. So they theorize that students could encounter a bunch of forms of classism, including citational, interpersonal, and institutionalized. Citational is stereotypes of people from lower social class backgrounds, such as low intelligence to people who are poor. Interpersonal classism includes behaviors that will devalue uh, those from lower social class backgrounds. For example, student organizations could facilitate social activities like skiing trips that all students may not be able to afford and attend. Institutionalized classism refers to organizational structures that exclude those with lower social class. For example, some colleges may highly encourage study abroad programs with little financial support for students, which takes those out of the running if you didn't come from a richer family. Okay, so they had a few hypotheses. One, social class background variables like the subjective social class and first generation status would be stronger predictors of perceptions of interpersonal and institutionalized classism than the citational classism. 
They also thought that the perceptions of all these types of classes and variables would predict academic satisfaction and GPA, while only perceptions of citational and interpersonal would predict life satisfaction. And the last hypothesis is the relationship between social class, first-generation status, and academic outcomes would be explained by perceptions of citational, interpersonal, and institutionalized classism experiences, while the relationship between social class, first-generation status, and life satisfaction would be explained by perceptions of citational and interpersonal classism. So they had 1,225 college students in this sample, and this is in the Midwestern United States. They're all around uh, 19 years old. It was about uh, half and half as far as men and women, and they had a pretty good uh, mix of of different of different uh, of different ethnic backgrounds. So, and then they gave them a bunch of tests. Um, first, they wanted to find out their generation status if they were first or second generation college student, and then um, their GPA, and then their social class as measured by something called the MacArthur Scale of Subjective Social Status. And then they wanted to measure classism with the Classism Experiences Questionnaire, uh, and this was particularly written for those in academic settings. Also, life satisfaction, which is the satisfaction with life scale, and academic satisfaction, which was done by the academic satisfaction scale. And here's what they found is that social class and first-generation status predicted institutionalized classism and interpersonal classism, and social class predicted citational classism. On the other side of things, institutionalized classism and citational classism negatively predicted life satisfaction. So the more of this classism they had, the lower their life satisfaction is. And institutionalized classism negatively predicted academic satisfaction. So it's not just that it's going to affect you in school. It's going to affect you kind of your your whole – your whole thoughts about the world and the way it works. If you are, if you're put in this situation where you feel, you feel, you perceive that you are being discriminated against because of your class, because of how much money you have, any of those things, it's not only going to affect your GPA, but it's going to affect just your quality of life in general. So it is like actually a really, really big issue. So if I can, I always like to bring things back to psychotherapy because that's what I'm studying. So there's an article by Laura Smith called psychotherapy, classism, and the poor, conspicuous by their absence. And I think a really one of the simplest ways to look at class is purely monetarily because there are certainly divides there. So psychotherapy with poorer clients has been the subject of discussion in psychology for basically the last 40 years. And at various points during this period, psychologists have concluded that poor people are neither less interested in nor less able to benefit from the psychotherapeutic process than other demographic groups. Presumptions to the contrary have been linked to therapists, quote, negative bias towards them and a lack of educational techniques for addressing these biases. So in terms of definitions, uh, one really well-known author, Lou, has tried to document psychology's lack of clarity with regard to the use of social class as a construct in itself. Language used to describe populations of interest vary widely. You could hear descriptors like low income, lower class, low socioeconomic status, poor, economically poor, working poor, disadvantaged. All, all, this, all these terms are, have been kind of sloppy throughout the years. So in this article, when they talked about poor, they were talking about people living near or beneath the poverty line. This term, this term poor, was actually pretty adequately described in 1977. 
And these particular people said, we mean people who have been poor all their lives, whose parents were poor, and who have a high probability of remaining poor. It is thus a social as well as an economic condition. This definition of poor does not have sharp boundaries, but includes the unemployed, partially employed, and the lower income members of the working class. Now, of course, in this article, they also talk about classism, but it's not used simply to describe prejudiced attitudes that people of one social class might have regarding members of another. Rather, classism, like the other isms, like racism, sexism, heterosexism, is a form of oppression. Oppression can be understood as prejudice plus power. It's a system that kind of interlocks and it involves domination and control of social ideology, institutions, and resources. So it results in this condition of privilege for one group relative to the disenfranchisement of another. So it's not just that you have privilege. It's like there's a finite amount of stuff. And when some of the stuff goes to this privileged group, it's being taken away from the underprivileged group. So it's understandable that although poor people might certainly harbor prejudices against middle class or wealthy people, these attitudes are not actually referred to as classism because they don't have the power, much like institutional racism. Now, the first time psychotherapy and poor clients kind of came to the forefront was in the 1960s because there were a lot of community mental health centers that grew out of the 1960s. So actually, President John F. Kennedy advocated for this in 1963 for this federal funding of research with regard to mental disorders and the construction of 2,000 community mental health centers. So the idea was to make psychotherapy available to people of all income levels, and this appeared against the backdrop of the widely held opinion among psychotherapists during this time that most poor people did not have the skills to engage in the therapeutic process. There's actually a lot of research from the 70s that showed therapists incorrectly perceived poor clients as hostile, crude in language and behavior, and a waste of supervisory time. Not surprisingly, researchers found higher class status to be reliably associated with acceptance into treatment itself. Then we move to the 70s. So as many of these mental health centers opened their doors during the 1970s, they became much more culturally aware. Now, of course, during this time, they're still working with these same therapists who disliked working with poor people and held, held out little hope of beneficial prognosis. So lots of these poor clients failed to show improvement or just left treatment. Now, past the 1970s, attention started to shift. And they found that when therapists have the skills and awareness needed to understand class-related attitudes and issues, then psychotherapy with a poor patient is no different from good psychotherapy with anyone. Unfortunately, during the 80s, psychologists' attention shifted away from concerns with the psychological consequences of poverty and towards the biology, neurology, and genetics of mental disorders. While this so-called medical model was, was gaining in prominence, federal support for this movement of community mental health centers waned as the Reagan administration began to scale back funding in the 1980s. Of the 2,000 of these that were planned for construction, only 750 had been established, and they were now struggling for economic survival. So, of course, that makes them less likely to take on poor clients, so the problem continues. Now, by the early 1980s, a lot of feminist thinkers and social critics were challenging mainstream feminism on its claims that it represent the experiences of all women. Rather, they argued it was concerned only with the experience of middle-class white heterosexual women. As a part of this movement, they began their own process of self-examination and, in doing this, became a really strong source of advocacy for services to poor clients and the development of class-related cultural competence among all therapists. Psychology Today seems to present basically two different ideas, two faces regarding the poor. 
On one hand, recent contributions to the psychological literature suggest that poor people have again receded into the background of our concern as professionals. Saris and Johnson Robledo in 2000 summarized the results of their content analysis in the title of their article. It said, poor women are still shut out of mainstream psychology. I mean, that kind of puts it in bold there. And Morera in 2003 deplored the growing tendency worldwide to relegate mental health treatment for the poor to hospitals and psychiatrists, a trend that she titled the medicalization of poverty. And this is a huge, huge deal because psychiatrists are great. They, they definitely serve a really important purpose, but they're not psychotherapists, most of them. Some of them are trained as psychotherapists as well, but if you're just literally going to bring the poor people in and feed them drugs and send them on their way or lock them away in hospitals, then we're not actually helping them. I said there were two sides to it, right? Two faces. So juxtaposed with these findings are the better intentions that are articulated within the field of psychology. The American Psychological Association, the APA, recently adopted a resolution on poverty and socioeconomic status in which they state stated that poverty is detrimental to psychological well-being and charged psychologists with the responsibility to treat and address the needs of low-income individuals and families. This resolution challenges psychologists to address poverty, classism, practitioner competence and training, and public policy, which will clearly portray a field in service to all segments of society. Now, this movie that we're talking about today, of course, no one in there sees, sees therapists. That, that doesn't come up. But the attitudes that kind of are pervasive in our culture towards people of lower social class, even though this movie is set in England, I think it ha- it has a lot to say about about American social class systems too I think it's it's simpler to set it like in places like England or places like India where social class is a little bit easier for us to delineate um, but it definitely still occurs here and it's definitely something that's still important. All right, so that's it for the psychology section. Uh, When we come back, we will bring back in Jared Dotson to talk about his favorite movie to talk about, apparently, Matchpoint. All right, so we're back to actually talk about the movie now. Uh, now, talk, back to talk about Matchpoint. One thing I'd like to get out of my guess is kind of your history with this movie. Um, mm. Was the first time you saw it when you reviewed it on War Machine versus Warhorse? It was. I had never watched it before. And uh, as you can tell, I was completely enamored with it. <laughs> I wrote five to six pages just to describe how much I loved it. But I, it's a. Um, Specifically, I think it was uh, episode five we did um, on the other woman, yeah. which way back that's like two hundred oh, yeah, episodes ago. Yeah, yeah, that's that, that was uh, two hundred and forty, like eight episodes or something ago. So crazy. Yeah. Well, what about um, what's your relationship with Woody Allen movies? Like, what's uh, are there particular favorites? Do you think he's great across the board? Uh, admittedly, I'm no expert as far as his movies go. I haven't really watched a ton of them, which also I don't know why I talk about movies in general because my list of things I don't watch is staggering to say the least. <laughs> but um, uh, I, I liked uh, Midnight in Paris. That's um, a good one. I have Blue Jasmine. I, I, it's terrible that I've not watched it. Um, I really, I hate saying it, but I've not watched Annie Hall or oh, Manhattan. Man. Which, uh, yeah, go ahead and Classics, roast, sure. roast me on that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, like Woody Allen is probably the most hit or miss director out there for me. 
Like about mm. half the time I'll see a Woody Allen movie and I'll just absolutely adore it. Like I'll love mm. every frame of it. And then there's other ones where you're like, why am I – God, why am I even wasting my two hours <laughs> with this fucking neurotic nonsense yeah, New yeah. Yorker, you know? And that and was, I yeah. and I think a lot of it's because he puts out so many movies. Like it's he, like one a year. Yeah, I, I looked at every the, year uh, he's got a movie out yeah. at least. It's not mm. Kubrick, you know. It's not like well, take nine years to build this movie. <laughs> you know, it's oh. like well, you know, we got to we'll just film in New York. It'll be fine. Like I'll just mm. you know write this script and we'll we'll film it because I'm fucking Woody Allen and everyone will be in my movie well, because I'm Woody Allen. Which you know, there's not going to be any CGI or special effects or anything. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, yeah, not a lot of that. <laughs> it, it has to be. You know, I don't want to belittle actors, but it, it has to be particularly easier to make a Woody Allen film yeah. than uh, some of the big action films or even the fantastic Marvel films. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Mike's favorite. See, now I just, just want talking. like a Woody Allen Marvel movie. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I would it pay would so much money for that to happen. It would never leave like the war table of them discussing <laughs> things. Like it, it would never – like there would be no action. It would always be neuroses and yeah. – complaining about <laughs> you would just hear explosions in the background like nothing would actually happen on screen uh, why, just all why, conversations <laughs> why do we even try it's going to happen anyway so yeah, so true um so my my relationship with this movie in particular i had never seen it until until this episode so i watched mm. it a couple days ago uh learned by the master on match point that's yeah. right well you know i heard <laughs> i heard that episode i heard the synopsis i was like i i, I gotta see this clearly uh and i was you know cafe society is coming out the new woody allen yeah. movie so um so i was talking with mike of course as i do about all my scheduling because i like to share my my anger and my vitriol at the film industry for moving around their goddamn <laughs> opening schedules uh and i was like oh it's a woody allen movie. i can do that and then i was like holy shit i have a great idea I'm going to do match point and bring in Jared. And Mike, Mike was just about as excited as I was. He was like, Oh, this oh. Ha- you have to make this happen. So, so here we are. Um, and this is a rare Woody Allen movie for me. I did not love it and I did not hate it. It's, hmm. I think it's a fine movie. I think it's, I think there are some weak spots that, that we'll get to when we get to our sections. Um, but I will say that a Woody Allen mediocre movie is probably better. Than most directors' good movies, so I think you, right. you've got a lot to gauge against it. Like he has made mm. some true classics, some true comedy classics. It's weird to call them comedy because I don't think, I don't think I've ever watched a Woody Allen movie and like laughed out loud. It's not that kind mm. of you just kind of, kind of, of smirk, like smirk. Chuckle. Yeah, exactly. Like kind of like oh, I no, that's funny, you know. But you mm-hmm. do that for the whole movie and it really sticks with you. Uh, and of course this. You know, there may be some comedic moments depending on how you look at the movie, but this definitely is not. <laughs> this is not designed not a as comedy. a comedy. Yeah, no. So, but no, I did I mean, enjoy there are it. a couple. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so to start off, uh, what did you think of Woody Allen's direction here? I think he did a really good job with it. It wasn't. I think one of my compliments from the uh, War Machine versus War Horse episode was it. It, it, it seems kind of run of the mill. Um, or, well, it did that time anyway. Um, what I really liked about it this time, in this particular time through, is we were going for you know the classism angle, and I was able to pick up on a few more little nuggets that he um, left through the movie, which I, I really enjoyed. Yeah, there um, were a lot. Like, <laughs> I yeah. kind of came up with that idea, but as I was watching, I was like, "There's this and this." Like, there's a lot mm-hmm. of hints dropped in there. When I watched it the first time through, 
I was mainly going for the uh, the infidelity and the uh, sure. the cheating angle, so I didn't really pay the, as much attention or focus on the classism of it. But honestly, I think I liked it probably a little bit more this time through. It felt like it had a little bit more substance as far as what the subject material was that we were focusing on. Yeah, well, this just shows you that you should listen to me and not Mike. I hope I hope that we've I'm, made that I'm clear. I that. make yeah. movies better is really what, <laughs> what you should come away with here. Uh, one thing I really liked is this kind of repeated kind of visual theme that begins in the in basically in the opening credits with the the ball almost going over over the net. You know, the tennis ball almost going over the net, and then you have the scene later in the film with the with the ring almost going over into the water. I thought like that was actually, I mean, for Woody Allen kind of uh kind of artistic like he's not one of those directors usually that uh uses a lot of visual metaphors like his movies are usually very very kind of in your face and just like i'm going to show you usually my own neuroses and show you these relationships and how they work you know so this was a very different kind of movie for him and i really liked those choices and you kind of get hammered over the head a little bit with luck and how they they probably mentioned luck like 15 or 20 times in the movie that was almost the theme but i was like that's a little too on the nose (laughs) like (laughs) luck is everything you know luck plays a part like i was like okay Uh (laughs) i get it woody calm down (laughs) the the ring and the tennis ball was a pretty pretty nice symmetry as far as at the beginning of the film and at the end of the film and the you probably could have taken out a lot of the talking about luck and just you let the viewers infer that on their own but I, I, it's nothing that really took away from from it for me. Yeah. One of the shots uh, that I was really impressed with is there's, I think, the first time that our main character, uh, played by Jonathan Reese Myers and Scarlett Johansson's character, having sex. You you know, it's not over the top. It's not, you know, this, this sex scene that's going to make people uncomfortable. But he originally shoots it, like, from kind of around the corner through a mirror. And I really like that. Like, so we were kind of looking like we're peeking in on something that is hidden, that we're not supposed to be seeing, that no one is supposed to do or see. So I liked that decision instead of instead of just going like, oh, we have a sex scene with these two gorgeous people. Like, let's just show it. I thought, like, that was an interesting choice. It's something that, as I was watching uh, the movie, I texted Well, if you Mike, like pretty white people, this like, is the movie for well, you. Well, if you like, like pretty white people, like, this is the movie but, for you. Like, it's, like, nothing but gorgeous Anglo-Saxon people. Like, oh, everybody yeah. in this movie. I'm just oh, like... Look at all these Puritans. Apparently, like, just England is just <laughs> full of, like, models, apparently, according mm-hmm. to Woody Allen. Which is interesting coming from the native New Yorker. <laughs> so you're not talking about the uh the scene in the field oh yeah probably, yeah that was the first f- you're right i was thinking of the scene after that where they like snuck off together yes uh, the, the scene field. in the field was probably my favorite scene in the entire movie just because it the implications yeah because you know they're out there he's like take me in the rain in the field i you know i'm it, it, it plays up for the the passion of the moment or whatever and mm-hmm. uh, the the raw uh, feelings for one another. But how do you come back and explain that to people in the house? Because <laughs> like, you've got like straw all over you. Got, you and- you've got grass all over you, like in your hair and your clothes are stretched out and you're both like soaking wet. It's like, where have you two been? Well, you know, it was uh, raining. Uh, <laughs> um, But I also <laughs> – but from a visual perspective, I like that scene, too. It's another way, I think, of hammering home the class differences, how, like, they're mm-hmm. literally hidden in the grass of this yep. field owned by the people of the upper class. So, like, everything they do is mm-hmm. secret, and their sex is all about passion, whereas everyone else's sex in this movie, as 
<laughs> one of my favorite yeah. moments of the War Machine versus Warhorse uh, episode. Her, I'm trying to remember exactly what you said. Like <laughs> her, like mm-hmm. about her taking her temperature and all that. Like it's just, <laughs> I mean, it's brutal. Like especially like as a guy watching this, it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. hot. Who doesn't want that? You know. <laughs> That's one of the things I noted on my second time through. There's just I can't get past it. Like the the convulsion that you just see, like in his face, just like, just like oh my god, just the processed uh, nonsense of all of it. Just let me take my temperature. Like oh, you're getting me hot and bothered now. I can't. Oh, belt just came off. Can't like, wait. Uh, oh boy. Well, I mean, it doesn't help when on the other side of town you've got ScarJo waiting for you. Like, yeah, I almost feel like casting wise, it's like this is even fair. <laughs> Like, I, I guess, like, I I would find it interesting to hear, like, uh, the female viewing of this film, because as a guy, mm-hmm. like, despite the fact that he's, like, getting married and is dedicated to this woman, you're still kind of like, but, but it's Scarlett Johansson. Like, mm-hmm. come on. Like, everybody's, you know, there's the whole friends, like, everybody's got their list of five people. And if ScarJo mm-hmm. isn't on your list, like, you're probably uh, not in my age bracket. Like, that's just <laughs> everybody wants that. So so that makes it a little hard to to root for anyone else in this movie mm-hmm. because it just, like, it defies logic that he would stay in that situation. Like, it, it's almost that scene is so over the top with her, like, taking her temperature and, you know, forgetting <laughs> to do things that you're just kind of like, okay, yeah, yeah, just go, man. Do what you got to do. Saying- what you're saying is we we don't even need the taking the temperature to get the nope. the revulsion. Right. Just uh, just look at her and then look at the Scarlett Johansson. <laughs> hey, you said that. I did not. I have nothing but nice well, things to say about Emily Mortimer. I was going to say She's Emily a good looking Mortimer, lady. Mortimer, if you're listening to this, I mean you no harm. But up against Scarlett Johansson, it's, it's a tough fight. Well, it's like choosing fight. between me and Brad Pitt. Like, it's not – like, come on now. <laughs> like – I mean, I have a pretty healthy self-image, but I'm not going to say, yeah, you should definitely choose me over Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt. That's just nonsense. Like, come on. <laughs> but I thought um, I thought other than that, like, it's kind of a stereotypical Woody Allen movie when it comes to the way he films. He has – and I, I don't – I don't think this is an insult. He just has like a very steady hand. He's like the opposite of someone like Paul Greengrass who like can't stop moving the camera. He, he knows what he's doing. He's a professional director. Um, but I really, one scene that stood out to me is not being that there was a, there was an argument um, before they were all going to go on holiday. And during mm-hmm. this argument, the camera moves a lot more, like jumps from person to person, jumps from reaction to reaction. And I thought that was a really excellent choice, too, to kind of put us mm-hmm. in that mode of everyone is on edge. Yeah. Everyone has this tension and nobody's mm-hmm. happy. Um, and in a in a movie that the world around, even when awful things are happening, is so calm and so collected and so distant, I liked those choices. He kind of, uh, again, not not an expert on any of his <laughs> directorial uh, having seen two of his movies having i can seen tell two you of his films i'm going to tell you something uh <laughs> no but the, i thought the pacing was pretty good um he he does kind of just kind of jump it's clean cut from one scene to the mm-hmm. next um I, I have an appreciation for that but yeah it kind of get it gets a little bit I won't. I don't want to say boring, but kind of run of the mill, I suppose. Yeah, it's, it's not. No risks are taken. No kind of apart from the one scene you mentioned, as far as I guess when he had too much coffee, you know. <laughs> but I think that like no risk taken. I think it. You know, you can use that as a negative, or you can see like this is. 
this is the world that this is taking place in yeah. too. No one in that world takes risks. No one in that world moves quickly. Yeah. None of them have like real jobs. Like they they hang out in offices all day. Like they're they're not working in a factory somewhere. Like they're they've got yeah. pretty cushy jobs and they don't take a lot of risks and they you know they r- run through a lot of money and they do whatever kind of they want to do. You know, so I feel like that that visual image really matches the world that Woody Allen has created here, which is a very different world than his kind of stereotypical kind of fast paced New York world. Yeah, as uh, somebody that works in a factory, it's it was tough to watch this. You, just like, a little bit. You motherfuckers. I hate every <laughs> single one of you. I'm not rooting for that really, I hope you all die. <laughs> I hope he takes a shotgun to all of you. <laughs> All right, so let's jump into the acting. So the first person to talk about is Jonathan Reese Myers, who plays Chris Wilton, our main character, the the tennis pro, right? And this is actually the reason I think it took me so long to watch this movie, is I remember hearing about it when it came out. I was like, it's a Woody Allen movie about tennis with Jonathan Reese Myers and ScarJo. And I was like, Meh, no, thank oh, you. Sell me. I will Keep pass on, on that. Like, nobody told me it was about infidelity. Nobody told me it was like a murder no. mystery. Like, then I would have been all in. Um, but I feel like his performance is easily the weakest in the cast. Um, and I, But I do think Woody Allen as a director takes advantage of that. That opening scene when he, like, you know, meets his, his, new, his new tennis student. Okay, so who was better or tougher? Hamlin or Agassi? They were both great. Yeah, I know, but I mean, you, you held your own more than admirably. For a while. But as the game goes on, you see how really good they are. Actually, I'll get this. No, no, no. No, no please, no, Tom, no, no, I insist. No, 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 no. Get your dirty, great forehand off. So, do you need a lift after this? Actually, I'm looking for a music store. I want to buy some CDs. Music around here? Hmm? I think there's one on the Fulham Road. And they'll have a decent opera section. Opera? Mm-hmm. You like opera, really? I love opera. Papa gives loads to the royal in Covent Garden. I know this is going to sound a bit weird, but would you like to go to the opera tomorrow night? To the opera? Yeah, and we've got a box and someone's not coming. It's a bloody traviata. <laughs> my God. I'd love to. Are you sure it's not an imposition? <laughs> Can I at least pay for my seat? It's not an imposition. It'd be an absolute pleasure. I just like the fact that we both share a love for opera. Brilliant. And he starts talking about opera and all this other nonsense that no other <laughs> human being on earth would would talk about. He it's a terrible performance from Jonathan Reese Myers, but it comes across as like kind of nervous and not sure and trying to figure out what's the right thing to say. And I think it comes kind from bad poser, acting. Yeah. yeah. So I think it comes from bad acting, but I think Woody Allen very smartly uses this to make sense for the character. Yeah, I feel like he kind of shaped that around him. He comes off as somebody that's just sort of morally bankrupt and trying to sponge whatever he can off of whoever he's talking to or whatever situation he's in to try and advance himself. Um, but having said that, even in like the high pressure moments in this movie, like I, I wasn't really impressed with how he acted. Like right, a, a little bit, you know, his eyes were a little bit soggy, and he was able to. He just, it's just boring. It, even right. what, dealing with what we're dealing with. He doesn't have – there's nothing that, like, displays passion about him as far as tar- towards Scarlett Johansson. Um, and how hard can that be to act? Man, I could do that in a heartbeat. <laughs> I could do that right now if he was here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just feel like – I mean, bless his heart. Jonathan Reese Myers is just not – he's just not that talented. It's a good thing he's a good-looking guy because if he was not – if he did not look like he does, he would not get the roles – 
that he has gotten. Like the fact that he got into a Woody Allen movie to begin with is kind of like how how did it's this kind happen? Of, <laughs> kind of an odd casting choice. Whenever you it look is. at some of the other people in his films, like what. I, when I looked as like led by Jonathan Race Myers, what what has he done? What does he have on Woody Allen? To it? <laughs> <laughs> well, well I'm given Woody Allen's up. past, he might have some stuff on him. I mean, yeah. let's not get into that too deep, but <laughs> it's a possibility. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can definitely agree that he was probably the weakest of the um, actors in that film, which is odd for somebody that's playing your protagonist, your antagonist, yeah. your, pre- your lead, pretty much. So it's. It was not carried by him at all, even yeah. though the, the the story goes through him, but it everybody else kind of outacted him, I thought. Right. And you have, of course, Scarlett Johansson, who I think is great, but I also don't think she's challenged here. Like, she's essentially cast to play the sex pot, which is mm. kind of at that, especially at that point in her career, that's kind of what she was known for already. I mean, if you take out her kind of introduction in, you know, our buddy Mike's favorite fucking comic book movie of all time ghost world if you take that out uh like she has played that a lot so it seemed like you know woody probably just went like oh this is what this is what people right now think is a sex pot so i'm just gonna Mm -hmm. cast her and no one says no to me because i'm woody allen so i'm gonna get her in my movie too but i did think she was really good and i feel like later in the movie after she gets pregnant and she's kind of freaking out about everything i actually really liked her performance it seemed very real um very extreme, but not to the point where you feel like someone wouldn't go through that. Like her performance really worked for me. The difficulty uh, ratcheted up quite a bit as far as her uh, her acting chops or her what was on her plate as far as acting goes. Um, Especially when you throw in who her scene partner is for most of those scenes. <laughs> Jonathan Reese Myers just sitting there like a log, like, what are we doing? What's I pregnant? Promise. What's happening? Oh, no. So, uh, that's pretty much exactly how I felt about it in the first part of the movie is, you know, sultry, you know, kind of sex pot, the uh, obviously going to be the woman that tempts him away. But, uh, yeah, she applies a decent amount of crazy in the second part of the movie. Too. <laughs> I don't want to yeah. sound like a misogynist, but she just goes, I mean, there's a difference between, you know, trying to resolve the situation and then showing up at his apartment and screaming in his face. And I, I thought she did a pretty good job of that. Yeah, because it was, you know, that kind of overboard. But when you think about the fact like she's had two abortions in her life already, it's probably not safe for her to have another one. She isn't in a situation anymore where she has a lot of money. So she needs, you know, a little obviously a little help in this situation. And he is the one who had sex with her without, you know, without protection. He is a Mm. part of this. So I felt like I I was way more on her side than I than I was our supposed protagonist side. Uh, our protagonist is probably one of the least pulled for protagonists <laughs> in <laughs> recent memory as far as what I've watched, man. He's, he's really extremely hard to root for. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the cover kind of gets thrown back in the second half of the film and kind of see people and why, how and why they act the way that they do. So what did you think of, uh, Emily Mortimer's, uh, performance here? Uh, as as Chris's wife. I was going to use the soundbite from earlier where I called it slag. <laughs> so classy. Uh, I thought she did a really good job, but you know, it's you don't really pull for too many people in this film, and you find yourself kind of not pulling for her, at least in my personal opinion. You know, it's and she really does nothing wrong. It's just, oh god, she's so boring and 
really doesn't add anything as far as like the way her scenes go. I guess it's probably designed that way because, you know, the exciting and the fun and all that before she goes crazy is with ScarJo and then all the the procedure and the buzz with Emily Mortimer. <laughs> yeah, and I think it doesn't help that the fact you can tell from the beginning that Chris is only with her because it's – I mean, it sounds really shitty, himself. but it's an opportunity. Yeah. You know, he's, he's, he's there to move up. It's not about her even though she seems like – like a wonderful young woman, like someone you'd mm-hmm. want to spend a lot of time with. Like she seems great, you know, and she really is all about him. So that helps too. But he's mm-hmm. just kind of like, well, I got to get in with this opera loving family. So let's, uh, <laughs> let's do what I got to do, you know, by all means, a good person. And it's really strange that I come away feeling that way. But I guess, I guess that probably trying to make it under people understand, viewers understand, like she's fine. She's great. She wants to have his children. She's, you know, by all means, a great person, but ah, ScarJo, I just kind of, <laughs> just kind of keep on going back to ScarJo for yeah. some reason. Weird. Uh, and then Weird we have, how I do that. And then we have Matthew Good, um, who is kind of the original, uh, like a uh, tennis student for our main character, mm-hmm. and I guess probably is most well known uh, for being in uh, The Watchmen. Uh, he played Ozymandias in The Watchmen. Um, I really liked his performance here. Like, I didn't like his character. He's awful and like elitist and way over the top, but he plays that really well. Like you could see how someone like Chris would be like charmed by him and want to be in his inner circle because he is he does feel like someone that you want to get closer to that um, that pulls a lot of weight in the world and knows who he is and knows what he wants to do. So you can see why he's like alluring. But as you get closer and see some of the awful things that he has done and will do, I think it's played so well and written so well that you're brought in in the beginning. And by the end, you're like, oh, this guy is such a prick. Like, (laughs) I have no interest in you. And he still acts pretty much the same way through the entire film. Yeah. He doesn't really. He is break who he his, is. He, he is yeah. who he is. And at the beginning, you think, "Well, what a charming debonair man." He's right. He plays tennis and listens to opera, and he's getting married. He's you know, he's he's all all around decent guy. And by the end of the movie, it's like, okay, he still acts the exact same, but right. he's done this. He's done this. He's cheated on his fiance. He's broke up with her. I mean, it's. Yeah. Uh, you can't root for anybody in this film. It's it's <laughs> <laughs> But I think the person you probably root for maybe even a little bit less than Chris Wilton is is the mom. Uh oh so, who's just like the worst. God. Uh Penelope Wilton who's been in a few other things now but probably back then people didn't really know her and I think she is the ultimate She's a representation of classism in the worst way, whereas her husband, mm-hmm. played by Brian Cox, is a representative of classism kind of in, in a nicer way, where he, he generally seems Beneficial. to want to help people, um, but he still kind of doesn't realize how good he has it, because he's mm-hmm. pr- it's probably been in his family for, for generations, where he's just like, no, I just like to throw my money around. It's here. And- Take some. I have a lot. He, he thinks he's being beneficial, but right. as, you know, as somebody... I, obviously, I have no wealth. So whenever somebody tries to <laughs> try, somebody tries to pay for me for something, they don't. I guess they don't realize it. But you know, it's it's a sense of pride sort of yeah, thing. It's where, insulting. You know, I, I, it's insulting a little bit, and you don't. And it's of the best intentions because I don't. I don't think his character was trying to like show him up. Like here, I'll pay for this. No, don't definitely worry about not. It. It's but. just if you need a shoulder to lean on, I'm there for you. And it's good, but it's kind of belittling at the same time. 
Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree. But his his mom or their mother Oof. is belittling all the time. Yeah, like malevolently belittling. Like, <laughs> let me just tell you how worthless you are because you're an actress, because you're American, because you're not married. Like, whatever it is, it's just like Which, nothing is ever good enough. Especially apparently when she gets some G and T in her, she's G&T. just like brutal. <laughs> and by all means, she doesn't seem like she was part of how that wealth was built either so who nope. is she to be talking to somebody about you need to give up on your dreams another drink please <laughs> that sounds like a great night to me i'm gonna I, she's my she's my idol that's who i want to be just drink and that's belittle probably, people that's probably mike's like... favorite character right there <laughs> that does sound like someone he would really like all right so let's move to the writing of the script which of course was also uh written by woody allen as i think if not all of his movies, the vast majority. And I, I really like the script here. I think you mentioned the pacing of the film. It is really well paced. And as I was watching it, I mentioned uh, maybe off off air about how horrible my memory is when I hear things and I just immediately forget it, which uh, is really helpful when it comes to movies and really not so great when it comes to my education. But, you know, there it is. <laughs> um, and I totally forgot there was a whole murder mystery angle to this. But as I'm watching the movie, I get about halfway through it and I feel like, wait a minute, wasn't there – wasn't this supposed to be like a thriller? Wasn't there supposed to be like a crime? And I was like, and it does not feel like that until like no. maybe the last 20 minutes of the movie. Like it feels like a story about infidelity. It feels like a story about relationships, like all Woody Allen movies kind of are. And I love the way this film turns in like kind of the last third of the movie. And as a viewer, you don't see it coming. But it makes sense. It's not as if this comes completely out of the blue, but it's so well written. Everything is so well set up for that kind of, you know, the whole all the scene with the shotgun starting with, you know, assembling the shotgun and him talking on the phone to her about like what time are you going to be home? And even up until he shoots her, I wasn't sure which which woman he was going to kill. And I was mm. just like, because it really could have gone either way. It could have been like, well, I'm going to run off with ScarJo because I love her and she's she's going to have my kid. Or I need to keep the life I'm going to have. It's this very interesting choice point. And you as the audience don't really know which way it's headed. And to uh, expand on your point a little bit, I just wanted to mention part of why I liked the, the movie so much as well as the writing. Uh, <laughs> when it was presented to me for War Machine versus War Horse, I got confused and thought it was uh, Wimbledon for some reason around that same time frame. Some other part- fucking tennis movie. Uh- it, just, I, you know, I did it in passing. Was, he's like, yeah, we need to watch uh, Match Point. I was like, ah, oh, whatever. Paul Bettany, Kirsten Dunst, something about tennis, whatever. And then I I start watching the film. I'm, I'm like, this is uh, much more much more uh, well-written than I imagined, much <laughs> Better uh, actors in here. Uh, yeah. Oh, murder mystery! Yeah. Oh, this is crazy. I didn't <laughs> expect this at all. Yeah, I, I think it was expertly written. Um, I think that was the only nomination it got for the Academy Awards. Yeah, yeah, I think um, you're right, and that makes sense. I mean, I I think there are some good performances here, but I don't think there's any performances that are like amazing, like something that you will look at 20 mm-hmm. years from now and be like that performance in Matchpoint was incredible. I think it could have been if they had cast someone else other than Jonathan Reese Myers because he has the most heft mm-hmm. to his uh to his role, but he's probably the the weakest link as we talked about. I think maybe Scarjo could have been that, but it was just is too uh, I don't want to use the term run of the mill again, but it's nothing that is I mean, it was difficult considering how the first part of the film went, the turn that you have as far as first half 
sultry, calm, you know, mm-hmm. cool. Second half, crazy, off the wall. But in the terms <laughs> of things, it's still not like Oscar worthy, I don't think. Yeah. I think the only negative um, of the script that, that I thought of off the bat when I watched it, and some of it has to do with Reese Myers' performance, is that first scene where he meets ScarJo, where they're you know playing mm-hmm. ping pong for money for whatever reason, because mm-hmm. why not? You? I haven't played table tennis in quite a while. Would you like to play for a thousand pounds a game? What did I walk into? What did I walk into? It's like this. May I? Please. You have to lean in and hit through the ball. I was doing just fine until you showed up. Ah, story of my life. So tell me, what's a beautiful young American ping pong player doing mingling amongst the British upper class? Did anyone ever tell you you play a very aggressive game? Did anyone ever tell you you very sensual lips? Extremely aggressive. I'm naturally competitive. Is it off-putting? I'll have to think about that for a while. He's really forward and really aggressive. <laughs> like, just out of nowhere. Extremely like aggressive. Like, just like, let me get up in your personal space. And, like, and flirt is too weak of a word to describe what he's doing. It's like borderline sexual assault, considering uh-huh, yeah. you just met this woman. And everything leading up to that, he's really meek. And I get that they're trying to set up this idea that he has a dark side that will mm. lead to what's going to happen at the end of the film. But it really didn't seem to fit. It felt like there was a scene or two missing all. to like build up that characterization as someone who would actually do that. Well, he doesn't act like that in any other part of the film. Even whenever he's pursuing her, he's yeah. not that just like, that overtly scene. aggressive. Just, just that scene is like, ping pong, it got me hot. <laughs> <laughs> Well, like, that's I understandable. I mean, you know, don't let that guy watch that scene in Forrest Gump. He will be <laughs> <laughs> out of control. Yeah, so that scene really stands out to me. It's just like not fitting. Uh, but the rest mm-hmm. of it is so well paced and, you know, as we mentioned, did, kind of changes what the movie is as it goes, but in a good way. Did you um, notice, I, I don't know if this is something of a personal opinion or not, but the the... The dialogue changed when it was um, uh, Myers and ScarJo, kind of like the lower class people oh, yeah. had more, more you know, lower class. Com- I won't want to say lower class, but more real world conversations. Yeah. While you know the the English family had more kind of a debonair, um, uh, a highly toned how they were speaking in their yeah. Conversation. I think I think one thing that stands out to me there's a scene where they kind of run into each other where she's on the way to her 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 audition and she's talking about how nervous she is and they're talking like I mean it's the scene oh, out of yeah. all, the whole movie to me that feels the most like a Woody Allen written scene where it's like two people walking in a big city talking about their neuroses and how how nervous they are like it <laughs> it makes perfect sense that was but, the easiest written. <laughs> Scene for I know right he was like oh I got this I got this in my back pocket but once they go back to the house and people are like playing chess and drinking highballs then it's like all of a sudden <laughs> nothing real gets talked about everything is talked about with this kind of distance um, and oh. this kind of snarkiness and this attitude about everything like there's yeah there's like nothing real that actually gets discussed oh. but when you have those two characters things get talked about like even the 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 scene where she kind of talks about how how men have always wanted her 
just to kind of see what she'd be like, but not have a relationship with her. Like that's a very real deep conversation. And it only happens between her and Jonathan Reese Myers, which makes a lot of sense. All right. So the next section to jump into is production value. Uh, and this is a little difficult because it's very much not like we've talked about. It's not like <laughs> a regular Woody Allen movie. So did any of those scenes, like especially like on on the grounds in the house, did any of that like ring false to you or feel too much like a set or did that stuff all work? I I thought it all kind of worked. I mean, it's there's only so much that you can really do with it, I think, given the uh, – the what what the movie was about mm-hmm. there it's not really going to be anything extravagant so i i think it kind of worked for me it, it, it wasn't anything over the top it, the right. um the the rich people had seemed like it wasn't something like crazy chandeliers and like 15 maids or whatever you know it's just kind of like right. a cozy cozy place um yeah i mean and- i think i think all that stuff worked my only kind of my negative might lead into a bit of a positive and maybe it's just me mm. trying to explain away problems i have with a movie that i enjoyed watching uh which i mm. will do sometimes like it's fine because i liked it <laughs> shut up um, <laughs> you only see basically like one room of of that house and then outside so little of that feels mm. false it feels like a front it feels like a set a stage set yeah yeah right I, I see that, yeah yeah but the good thing about that is i think that's what the script thinks of that lifestyle is that it is mm-hmm. false and that it is a set and that it is, you know, something that that doesn't really matter in the end, which is why l- almost literally under their noses, two people can have sex in the field and no one will notice. Like, or still shotguns <laughs> to go out and commit right. murders without right. even by- Dropping bullets, like sloppy mm-hmm. criminal activity. And everyone's like, yeah, mm-hmm. it seems fine. <laughs> I thought maybe with the emphasis on the opera and maybe that was kind of part of it, it was kind of – his meshing out of his sort of traumatic uh, uh, tragedy uh, of an opera. Right. Uh, I mean, there's even that scene right outside the opera box where the mm. two of them are like almost yelling at each other about the fact that they've been fucking <laughs> like literally five feet from the people they're cheating on. Like him saying they're like, really I would like to them. fuck again. And her saying, no, yes, that please. was a one-time thing in the grass. <laughs> like it's, like guys maybe take a walk down the hall maybe yeah, let's go to the bathroom for a second yeah something so you, you know. got thrown out of the opera by then talking right. about that right. exactly <laughs> all right um so uh let's jump to our favorite scene so what scene stands out to you uh in match point uh, just because it totally took me out of the movie i have to say again the field scene it just i had to stop the movie to stop myself from laughing so hard because i keep i keep imagining them walking into the mansion covered in, covered in grass <laughs> like i can't stop myself like i was cackling the entire time like it, it, if they would have just like if woody would have just cut to a scene of them like you know toweling off and switching into different clothes or whatever i, I would have appreciated that it goes straight to him in like a business meeting so it's like well i guess we're not going to address that whatsoever they pulled it <laughs> off sure Right. I think uh, one of the scenes that stands out to me most is, uh, I think, ScarJo at her craziest uh, Mm -hmm. when she essentially stalks him and finds out he's still in town and starts (laughs) calling him a liar and screaming at him until he, like, forcibly throws her into a taxi cab. Yeah, that Uh, doesn't look suspicious whatsoever. Yeah, that doesn't look like sexual assault or someone being kidnapped (laughs) at all. But I loved her performance there. Like, it it definitely is extreme. It definitely is over the top. Mm -hmm. But given kind of what she's gone through, like, not only – 
the pregnancy and him kind of promising to leave and not doing it and then saying like, oh, I'm in another country. And then he's actually Mm -hmm. still in London, which not if I I think if I told that lie, I don't think I'd leave the house. I think I would uh, try to play it safe and just hang out with the shotguns in the basement. Like, do not. (laughs) (laughs) Only Jonathan Reese Myers is stupid enough to make that sort of lie and then just walking around the streets of London right. like nope I'm gonna find places where he has run bubbles. into her before Are usual what? stomps <laughs> come on but I do really like her performance there I think it I yeah. think it's excellent a lot of my other favorite scenes um either we've talked about or have a lot to do with class so I kind of want to save yeah. that for the last section uh but was there uh were there any other scenes that that stuck with you I'll let you save yours. Uh, the only other scene that really like had me uh, stop the movie is like when they're ordering in the restaurant. We order because he's waiting. Oh, you, sorry. I'll, I'll have the baked potato with truffles. That'll be lovely. Yum, yum. I'd like the same, please. Nothing to start. Oh, I think the wine list. I'll have the caviar blinis, please. Uh, roast chicken? God, boring. <laughs> Honestly, they have the greatest caviar blinis here. You should try them. That's okay. No, do you like caviar? So-so. <laughs> He's been brought up as a good boy to always order modestly. I'm very sorry. <laughs> He'll have the blini. My goodness, was your father an oil rigger who specialised in etiquette? Uh, he was kind of austere. Chris's dad was a bit of a religious fanatic. Oh, Christ. After he lost both his legs, he found Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> God, sorry, but it doesn't seem like a fair trade. And he orders the roasted chicken. Like I had to stop the film for that too, because I was like, "Let me have my chicken if I want to have chicken." Like, <laughs> okay, we no, will have the caviar blinis. <laughs> we no, will I get to that because that is yeah. definitely on my list to talk about. I, 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 I stopped the movie. I was like, "How dare you?" <laughs> I like <laughs> roast chicken. chicken. Like, <laughs> because that's <laughs> peasant food, Jared. How dare you? <laughs> so you get for working in a f- you work in your factory <laughs> and eat your chicken. <laughs> I like chicken. All right. Uh, so let's. So of course, as we talked about the theme, which was pretty, uh, pretty prevalent in the movie, more than I thought it would be uh, when I first kind of looked it up, is the idea of class and classism. And one of the things that comes up a lot is this idea that, like, I think throughout the entire movie, no one lets him pay for a goddamn thing. Like Nobody. every scene, every dinner scene, except maybe the scene where he's uh, having drinks with ScarJo. When he's with, you know, another peasant, like someone else another, not in yeah, the big house. Another factory worker, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, like, I love that every single scene he tries to pay and it was like, no, no, don't be ridiculous. Like, I know we employ you and you make good money, but you're not really on our level. It's just like – not really us. Yeah, it's another constant way to kind of make him realize that he's not – He's not in control and he's less than like to the point of, mm-hmm. you know, the the house that they move into is paid for by his wife's father. Even after his wife, his wife's father has given him a job. <laughs> like, oh, but don't <laughs> spend any, don't spend any of that money that I gave you. Sad. Let I me pay. pay for that too. Like, and whether they mean it or not, and this is even in real world examples, like it, it's, it's so frustrating, like it, just not being able to make your own way or pay your own ways like it's bad enough that you give me the job but then you have to don't worry about it you you always have a safety net with us like i don't want a safety net like i want to build my own safety net for myself like it right and it keeps on going that it's prevalent through the whole film and uh you finally see it in him at one point he meets a friend on the street and he's oh, like oh yeah. i'll pay for, i'll pay for your lunch i got your lunch buddy it's the expense account i was like well he's finally made the turn into being finally someone less than me i can Please. pay yes. 
But yeah, that that scene you brought up, that dinner scene, I felt like was probably the most important scene when it comes to class. Like everyone around like ordering the most expensive, fanciest thing on the menu. And not only does he order roast chicken uh, and everyone like mocks him openly, like just like, ha ha, chicken, chicken. gross, Uh, who eats chicken? You know, (laughs) like it's like it's like he went to a fancy restaurant and ordered spam. Like they just lose their mind, like cannot deal. I mean, we do that here in Kentucky, so. There you go. And there's and there's a bunch of scenes, other dinner scenes, where they don't usually show him eating with silverware. He's usually eating with his hands throughout yeah. the whole movie. So I, I thought that was like a really smart and interesting decision from, from Woody Allen, both as a writer and a director. That like, let's separate him just a little bit more. Like, he's so he's so separated <laughs> from them that he doesn't even use a fork and a knife in this I, movie. Like, just trying to equally disgust one another because he's eating with his hands and she's putting a thermometer in her <laughs> to gauge her fertility. It's like, God, I was in what a room, hot I couple. Just, yeah, My I goodness. Gotta I gotta go. <laughs> and there's something else I looked up when they, there's a scene when they go out to the movies, it's supposed to be all four of them. It ends up just three of them. And they go see a movie called the motorcycle diaries, uh, yep. which is, and I looked it up because I'm like, I bet this this ties in somehow because I've never seen that movie. Ends up it's a movie about Che Guevara. Uh, and Che Guevara was all about fighting the class system where he was from. So I was like, oh, there's another little note from Woody Allen. Like, just in case you fucking missed it, idiots, this movie is about class. You know? <laughs> please, please, this is what this movie's about. I'm going to do it a couple more times. But Motorcycle Diaries, we got Google, do it. Right. Exactly. And the only other thing I wanted to bring up is there's also a lot of discussion whenever whenever Chris is in the room, there's a lot of like infantilizing of him, like saying things like, oh, you're such a clever boy. Like from uh, his from his oh, from his wife, yeah, exactly. Like he's the family dog or something. Like, oh, oh. so clever! You found that stick. Good. <laughs> just like like every single interaction, it's the only reason we care a little bit about. Uh, about our main character it's that he's treated even though it's in this kind of gentle way he's still treated really poorly uh by everyone around him as far as like it seems benevolent but also it seems kind of crappy too like yeah. i can't really put my finger on like where you're wanting to go with this is is in is, is some i would really like to discuss this with like a rich person because i'd like to see their, their you would like to punch them in the face right after this movie ends? no is that not. i do that <laughs> Just to like ask him, like, do you do this to people? Like, is this your uh, is this your behavior? Do you realize you're belittling somebody? Boy, no, I never do that. <laughs> is this you on screen is this right you now? On the screen? Yeah. The other thing that I forgot to mention about the script the only the only other scene I really don't like is the scene where the ghosts of of his killed like appear to our main mm-hmm. character to tell him what he did was wrong, and I was like, <laughs> I yeah, we fucking get it. Like, we know. We know this is probably going to bite him in the ass, but I do like that the end of the film kind of ends with it not biting him in the ass, with him getting away with it. It's not a movie where it's like, oh, well, he he went too far and he got caught, so uh, that's the end. It was kind of like this thing like, yeah, it's fucked up, but he's connected, so he's not going to be punished for this. It does – it kind of uh, lends to the – it's all meaningless as far as like there's – there's luck and then there it's just unexplainable as far as how that goes yeah. within the movie like it it doesn't have meaning yeah but that the the ghost sequence like really bothered me it was like this huge misstep too, and i was just like too ham-fisted for you <laughs> yeah like i was like ooh he's haunted literally by <laughs> by his crimes like really is that is that where we're going here 
wouldn't Come want on. it to a Shakespearean tragedy. He has to have ghosts in it. Yeah, so. that's that's Woody for you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was going to say, I had a couple of things yeah, that I please. noticed. Uh, he was reading uh, Dostoevsky at the beginning. Did you catch that? Yeah, along with like... Along with like some a kind of like Cliff's piece. notes, like uh-huh. wait, what the fuck did that mean? Which I, I did like that touch. Yeah, I like that because you know it kind of lets you know at the end of the movie, like he wrote Crime and Punishment, so it kind of lends itself to that theory of uh, murder is permissible in pursuit of a higher purpose. Yeah, so kind of uh, telegraphing how the movie is going to go. Maybe a little bit, but so as long as your higher purpose is this girl is pregnant and crazy, it's okay to murder. I get her. to shoot her. Is that what you're uh, saying? Is that, that? That's how. That's how Jonathan is trying to do mental gymnastics to the. <laughs> oh, so that's not your thought process. It's his. Okay, I just want to make that's sure. his. That's not mine. No, no, I would never think that. No. <laughs> All right. Any other last comments on class? Any anything else you wanted to add? I, I just, I again would like to watch it with a rich person. Yeah. Yeah, it would be somebody, you know, watch it with Donald Trump, maybe see what he thinks about it. I don't want to do anything with Donald Trump. (laughs) I mean, nothing positive, certainly. Uh, It's it's interesting that someone like Woody Allen, who's so well respected and so as far as as far as direction, not maybe as far as being a human being, but as far as being a director in Hollywood, is very well respected, very well thought of, very rich. It's interesting Mm -hmm. to see him kind of come from the other side of this and talk about how old money is bad and fame is bad. And I think that's something that uh, rings true through a lot of his movies that he's, I think as a person, he's not comfortable with kind of how, how far he has come monetarily. I think he still thinks himself as that kind of uh, neurotic Jewish kid from the, from New York, you know? So it's, it's very interesting to see him look at the other side of things. Woody Allen uncomfortable with something. Well, you, <laughs> Shocking. You original idea here, yeah. <laughs> Stunning. All right. Um, so uh, the last thing we have to do, speaking of Woody Allen movies, there's a mm-hmm. new one coming out this year because it's that time of year. Uh, and it's Cafe Society <laughs> uh, starring Jesse Eisenberg, Kristen Stewart, uh, Steve Carell. Uh, Blake Lively is in this movie as well. Like, of course, oh, another oh. star-studded cast because it's because it's Always. Woody Allen. So, uh, what are your thoughts leading up to this movie? Are you excited to see this? Do you have any interest in it? I I thought it looked pretty good. It um, I'm willing to bet my uh, ticket money on anything that kind of tries to tries to depict the the roaring 20s and 30s in Hollywood. Mm. I think that's always, you know, you've got the big brass instruments and the the loud drum music and everything. It's it's an exciting period in film. As far as the uh the actors go, I'm kind of I don't I'm not really big on Jesse Eisenberg. I really like Steve Carell. Good I'm, man. I'm not I'm not uh <laughs> I'm way down on Kristen Stewart. And Blake Lively is uh I mean, she she looks pretty, but I don't know about her <laughs> acting ability. So, well, I would uh, I would charge you to go see The Shallows, the movie she's in right now, because oh, way yeah, way better that. than expected. Fantastic. That's, well, I heard that she's actually surprises. In yeah, that pretty, pretty good. Well. Yeah, so Cafe Society. Uh, I think you're right about kind of the time period. It's going to be interesting to see if if Woody Allen can handle that visually. Because it mm. can't be as simplistic. It's really got to hit those hit those notes, hit They're those really moments. Really bright. 
really yeah. sharp. Yeah. And that's not really most of what he does. Maybe a little bit of Midnight in Paris with kind of the time travel vibe mm-hmm. did that a little bit, but it's, he's going to have to kind of extend that to the entire runtime. Mm-hmm. Um, I hate Jesse Eisenberg. He's one of my least <laughs> favorite actors. Like he <laughs> drives me crazy. Um, like anytime I see a Jesse Eisenberg movie and I, and I walk out of it and you hear me say, you know, that was okay. That's like saying he should win an Oscar. Cause it's <laughs> just like, I just like, I walk in just with this vitriol and hate in my heart as soon as, as soon as he shows up. But he also does seem like a really good yep. kind of Woody Allen replacement. Exactly. You yep. know, cause he does have those... say that as my exact thought was like, he yeah. fits, he's got a fit of Woody Allen films. So. He does. But I think the difference between him and Woody Allen is Woody Allen had all those neuroses, but did not think that highly of himself. Whereas Jesse Eisenberg still seems to come off like he's got that like social network uh, yep, character like exactly, Zuckerberg. Yeah. So he's kind of like, yeah, I'm neurotic and ridiculous, but I'm the shit is what he comes up <laughs> and I'm like, really? Have you looked at yourself in the mirror? You were not that great. Just calm down. Um, I'm also kind of uh, being a little easier on Kristen Stewart as I see her in more things. Like I think she got mm-hmm. a really bad rap because she's in those horrible Twilight movies, which I refuse to watch. Uh, but like, I liked her in Adventureland. I thought, she, I thought she was actually quite good in that. Um, so I have a little bit of hope for her performance. I, I hope to see Steve Carell in another dramatic role that I like, unlike in Foxcatcher. So hopefully this will satisfy that. And I love looking at Blake Lively. So I'm all in for this movie. I'm, I'm excited. I kind of want to see he, it. So he, he's doing this whole, like you said again, like Blake Lively's the heavyweight. Christian Stewart is the bantamweight. I, I have no uh, no qualms about who I would pick as far as it, it looks like he's gone kind of got Jesse Eisenberg, you know, bouncing back between Christian, which and, is the uh, most Blake, unbelievable thing terrible. I have ever heard. Like, really, <laughs> this guy? On, that's who you... you're gonna fight over? Come on, <laughs> it's it's um, Hollywood. The, There's no one else you'd rather the, take a look at. <laughs> the mousy brunette is not going to win this one. I guarantee it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you heard it here first. Blake Lively wins again. <laughs> All right, uh, so before you head out, why don't you tell people uh, where they can reach you online so they can bother not just Mike, but you as well. <laughs> well, I have a Twitter account. It is at old underscore bald underscore Dotson. If you'd like to contact me, uh, if Emily Mortimer is out there listening to this and wants to uh, – <laughs> berate me that's fine i accept that i deserve it or if woody allen wants to talk to you about writing his next script with those amazing synopses that you've got going i mean really well i pretty i I have the volume for him if he wants to hire me on as a (laughs) script consultant that's (laughs) yeah i can i can give me any sort of put any sort of uh, consultant on there i can help i mean i've it might not be the best quality but volume wise that's right i will i will be there all right and dave will love every second of i it. will i will i just want <laughs> i just i just want like a 10% finder's fee that's that's all i'm asking for that's it so i'm almost, i'm just going to start my own podcast and i'm just going to do 20 minute synopses every week for you that you, way you would have a subscriber right away <laughs> i got one subscriber <laughs> All right. Uh, So thank you uh, for joining us on this episode of Pop Culture Case Study. I appreciate your time. I appreciate you indulging me uh, in talking about Matchpoint one more time. It's no problem, man. Anytime. I I don't do it as often anymore, but I I do genuinely enjoy talking about things that I have watched. I I can't speak for a lot of movies, but Matchpoint I have down pat, believe me.
All right, everybody, that's another episode of Pop Culture Case Study that's done. Thank you for listening. If you like the show, and I hope that you do if you're still listening now, there's a bunch of ways you can connect with the show. You can you can find us on followingfilms.com along with some other really great movie podcasts like War Machine vs. Warhorse and the True Romance Film Podcast. You can also follow me on Twitter at PCK Study. We have Facebook groups and Tumblr pages and pretty much everything out there we've got. Uh, so look us up, either Pop Culture Case Study or PC Case Study. Now, if you really want to go the extra mile, you can go to patreon.com slash popculturecasestudy. And there you can donate on a per-episode basis. So as little as a dollar an episode, $4 a month gets you some pretty cool rewards and lets you donate to an independent podcast. Now, speaking of those great shows like War Machine vs. Warhorse, that's, of course, where I heard Jared Dotson and was just completely entertained for those uh, beginning episodes. So, uh, as I guess a gift to myself and hopefully to you as my listeners, if you enjoy the same kind of comedic things that I do, I'm going to include Jared's synopsis of, uh, of Matchpoint, which we mentioned on the show. You could, of course, also go way back in War Machine vs. Warhorse. I think it's episode five, and you can uh, check out the whole episode. But I'm going to include kind of the uncut audio here one more time, so maybe Jared can continue his rise of internet infamy. So stay tuned for that. And until next time, I will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. Match Point is a 2005 thriller written and directed by Woody Allen. It stars Jonathan Rhys Myers. I guess that's how you say his middle name. Uh, Scarlett Johansson, Emily Mortimer, Matthew Good, and Brian Cox. The film centers around Myers' character, uh, Chris Wilton, and his climbing of the social ladder and where that eventually leads him in terms of his own morals as uh, well as what he values with his newfound wealth. So, we begin with Chris Wilton, a retired professional tennis player, being employed at a, as an instructor at a country club for wealthy individuals. It's there that he meets Tom Hewitt, played by Matthew Good, and through a shared interest in opera, the two become friends, and Chris eventually even begins de- uh, dating Tom's sister, Chloe Hewitt, played by Emily Mortimer. The two make a pretty good couple and are obviously very interested in one another, but soon a hitch is made apparent to the audience when Chris meets Tom's fiancée, Nola Rice, played by Scarlett Johansson, obviously. I, I really want to emphasize the, uh, the obviously of that statement. Scarlett Johansson, <laughs> obviously. Well, if there's going to be anybody that uh, tears Myers' character away, it's going to be Scarlett Johansson just by looking at her, obviously. 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 What are you saying, Jerry? <laughs> She's a good-looking dame. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> nice pickup, Josh, on that. <laughs> oh, yeah, obviously. Now, Chris has a pretty good thing going for him. He has the prospects of uh, marrying into this wealthy family. He's got a lucrative exec- executive job handed to him by Chloe's father, played by Brian Cox. And he's got a woman that indeed loves him and will is pretty faithful to him. But Chris ends up falling for Nola, and it consumes him to the point of where he's having drinks with her just alone, the two of them. But uh, they uh, they share a brief physical moment in the field where uh, Nola's kind of wandered to. This ends up leading nowhere, however, because Chris wants to pursue it, but Nola recognizes it for what it was, kind of lapse in judgment, and the two stick with their respective, uh, respective partners for the time being. So, having been rejected by Nola, Chris continues on this path that he was heading before he met her. He, uh, he marries Chloe. His professional life continues to climb the ladder. 
and he settles into a modern apartment with Chloe as they um, progress in their marriage as well, trying to start a family. But Chris ends up beginning to feel some boredom with his life uh, between kind of feeling claustrophobic at his new job and the terrible, terrifying, mechanical and joyless attempts from his wife to copulate. <laughs> Mike left. <laughs> Um, Thoughts, sir. I'll tell you what. Jared, if you were narrating this film, if you were just the the unnamed narrator, which would be Mm -hmm. awesome, they wouldn't have had to cast Scarlett Johansson once we got to this scene. They would just have to (laughs) have you you read that line again, and I'd be like, "Mm mm-hmm. Like a a shot of the husband, (laughs) both palms on the table as he stands up. It is time to cheat. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, Chris and Nola start seeing each other, uh, having this affair together. And as luck would have it, uh, while Chris is living this double life, he impregnates Nola while unsuccessfully doing so with his wife. And this kind of begins a uh, terrible... Hold on, pause. <laughs> what are you like? What? <laughs> as luck would have it. <laughs> I'm saying it's bad luck. <laughs> to impregnate the mistress and not God. your wife. This is... Uh... This has been the best uh, synopsis we've had on the podcast yet. This is uh, this is. I, I have to say, I'm being honest here. This might be more entertaining than the movie. Like, I think I just want to listen to the audiobook version as read by Jared Dotson. I feel like watch, watch Woody sarcastic. Allen's bullshit. No, I, <laughs> I'm saying that 100. No sarcasm. <laughs> I have thoroughly enjoyed the synopsis. I, I appreciate that. I worked hard <laughs> on it this morning. Your sentiments aren't wrong in what you're saying. It's just like. <laughs> You're, you're putting like a jolly twist on it or something like that. As luck would have it, she got well, pregnant again, which would result in her third abortion. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Josh, well, Josh just took it to the pass out. Like, yeah, too there far. I'm too glad I'm far. Not, the, not the only one who had a too far moment. Oh, now, I'm, I'm, I'm painfully aware that I have a monotone voice, and I'm trying my best to sound a little bit jollier than usual. No, I'm, not, I guess I, I'm, not, I'm talking about your wording. It's good. I'm, it's good. We, we like it. Keep it. I'm complaining yeah. about Josh there, what he did, because I'm just trying to enjoy a little, like, Bill Cosby himself, and Josh decided to go all fucking George Carlin on us there <laughs> and take it to a very dark place. Poor form. Poor form. Continue, Jared. So Chris is uh, finally forced into some sort of action, or his entire empire that he's built himself is uh, set to fall down on itself. He's got to uh, choose this uh, between this life of luxury with a woman he isn't exactly head over heels for, or living a much more mundane life with a woman he can't stop himself from being with, and that's his main conflict in the film. Chris shortly after uh, takes a breakdown shotgun from his father-in-law's and puts it into his tennis bag before calling Nola and telling her she uh, that he has some good news for her. Upon arriving, Chris gains entry to the building and convinces Nola's neighbor, who's seen him during the affair, to let him check in on something. I think it was the TV or maybe the cable or something. <laughs> it doesn't matter because he's it about don't to matter. shoot her. <laughs> but, of course, she agrees, and he assembles the shotgun. Oh, <laughs> uh, we can't make it through this. <laughs> and he assembles the shotgun. <laughs> He does. <laughs> oh, continue. Oh, God. <laughs> this this reading is phenomenal. <laughs> I fucking love it. <laughs> it only pains me that this is about to end. It's getting closer, thank God. 
he uh, he rummages through the apartment of this uh, elderly female neighbor to make it look like a robber had committed the murder and was just there for pills and jewelry, which he ends up taking and stuffing into his tennis bag. And unfortunately for her, Nola shows up shortly after where Chris proceeds to murder her as well as his unborn child. So Chris escapes from the apartment complex undetected and uh, takes a taxi to where he meets up with his wife. And uh, together they watch a musical. He returns... <laughs> Together they watch a musical. Jesus, this is <laughs> Jared. Too much detail. I may, I may have to vote for you to do every synopsis. <laughs> I can't help but feel that this is ironic and sarcastic. I don't believe you whatsoever. Two apparitions of uh, both Nola and the uh, the neighbor approach Chris and tell him of all the uh, the senseless and horrible things he's done. He should probably prepare for the consequences. And in that moment, Chris tells him that he w- what he did was necessary. He kind of starts rationalizing it. And that very same night, one of the detectives has a dream and has uh, thought his way through the murder and how and why Chris would have committed them. A fever dream. He actually has it all right. However, his partner informs him the next day that they found the elder, elderly neighbor's ring on a dead drug dealer who had gotten shot to death that very night, and that the uh, case of the triple murders had been solved in in the eyes of the law. And that is your synopsis of Match Point. <laughs> <clears throat> well, then. Well, what do you, you think about it, Jerry? <laughs> so I should go first then. 